I'll be loving you always with a love that you won't see here. There's no question about it. We'll all be undone by fools and knaves. Idiots, bourgeoisie. I have a secret ambition that one day when they lay me away, they will carve on my vast marble headstone, he died sustaining. Bring it up. I think that's kind of a nice soft sentimental thought, don't you? All together, gang, now. That's it, pulling your gut. Watch it there. Gonna get all tuned up here. Very good, very good. Try this one. I am in this phone booth, see. As a matter of fact, I think if there's anything that is more characteristic of 20th century man, it's that transparent phone booth that you see on the corner with the yellow street lamp hanging over it, you know, just drifting down that yellow light, and there is modern man hunched over the receiver, eternally trying to make contact with his fellow traveler on the yellow brick road of life, heading eternally towards that great emerald city, wherever it might be, treading his way through fields of poppies, hardly missing the sight of an occasional cowardly lion who from time to time hollers, Let's go, man! Wow, swing, Dad! Wow! Let me tell you about my problem with the phone booth. Of course, we've all had this, and I suspect this is a man thing. I think this is a male thing. You know, I, I think males, in spite of all the... Uh, the hoopla and the hogwash to the contrary, live almost totally separate lives from females. Their aspirations, their dreams, their nervousness, the way they look at the horizon. When a man looks at a lake, what does he see? Those riffling, soft breezes cutting a few furrows in that, in that flat expanse of inviting water. He sees a sailboat scudding before the wind. He sees small-mouthed bass lurking beneath the lily pads. He, yes, he, he, sees, he sees all this primal world of man fighting nature. And a chick looks at the lake, and what does she see? Something that's going to get her hair messed. And so, <laughs> really, you know, so there's, there's always this little miss, just a slight missing of the, of the pieces of the great jigsaw puzzle that we're all living in, never quite 
cut together, and there's that old phone booth, which is generally used for man to contact woman. It is general. It is. Let us face it. I, I <laughs> and it makes it so much better. Can you imagine? In the old days, guys had to go and look at him in the face. I mean, there was no such thing. I know guys who are so fantastic on the telephone that they spend their whole life on the phone. They never, they never go see anybody any longer in person. And they've got this beautiful phone personality. They're, they're performers. Do you look upon the telephone as a performing medium? You know, like a radio, television, like the movies. And you get on the phone, hello. Yeah, it's Chuck, yeah. <laughs> oh, what a rich deep, loamy personality just roaring out over them AT&T wires. Hello, Chuck here. <clears throat> yeah. Hello, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Listen, did you hear the story about the three Hungarians and the bow-legged dachshund, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on, it's not dirty. <laughs> oh, what a fantastic personality on the phone. Well, the other night, I am in this phone booth, see? And you know that little sign that says, have you called mother lately, long distance? And they've got this great mother that looks out, you know, the one that looks like uh, Mary Worth, only if you can imagine Mary Worth being played by Doris Day, uh, you know, at that great mother with the white fluffy hair and the rimless glasses and the big smile, the fantastic teeth. And it says, just think of the fun you'll have talking to mom right now. Give her a call. Well, I'm in this phone booth. I wonder how many guys have gotten sick. You know, looking at there's a picture of mother, and they're they're fighting. Oh, come on, she was well. All right, I'll call her. Well, I'm in the phone booth the other day, and written on one of those mother signs, <laughs> she was well. Written on one of those signs. <laughs> Holy smokes, already. Written on one of those signs is 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 the is the uh, phone number, the eternal phone number that you find in the phone booth. You know those phone numbers that say uh, 6SJ7GT, Marie? Have you ever had this, this terrible urge to call Marie? I don't think there is a man alive who but on a quiet Friday night or a quiet Tuesday night when you're just walking around picking your teeth and you get in that phone booth, you know, and you're going to make some dull call and you see it says, it says uh, Plaza 7-1848-GTL. And after it, it says Joan with an exclamation point. Holy smokes. Well, one night, not too long ago, I am in this phone booth. And I'm just going to give you this as a, as a warning, men. I'm in this phone booth, see, and I'm going to make a, a, a routine call, see. And I'm standing there, and I dial a number, and I get this, eh, eh, that angry little rotten busy signal, eh, eh. I hang up. I'm waiting. And there's eight guys already waiting for the phone booth, see. So I'm, I'm holding it down. And I'm pretending like I'm calling somebody else. I'm not really calling anybody else, see. But I see where it says, have you called mother? It says, Plaza 9-1748-GT, Marie. Well, and I picked up the phone and I dialed PL-917. Check it out. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, you just can't. Because you can see Marie, you know. I, I had this vision suddenly of Marie, and she's on a chaise lounge. And she's got a beaded curtain around her, and there's orange lights. And you could smell this Time Star incense, you know, the kind that says jasmine, and it's coming out of this, this Buddha's nose. And you can hear... Wow. 
<laughs> I dialed my number again. It goes, ah, 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 ah. busy. And by now, this little guy who's standing outside of the phone booth is already knocking. You know, up, up. So I quickly dialed Plaza. Seven, one, seven, four, eight. I'm going to do it. By George, I'm going to do it. It's GTL. Somewhere off of the distance, Marie's number is ringing. And I can see Marie's name right there on that mother card. It has three exclamation points after it and is underlined in red ink. Holy smokes. I hang up. Sweat. What do you do? Boy. Then quickly I grabbed the phone again and I dialed it all the way through. Plaza 9146879166 SJ7 GT. Marie. I'm here, Marie. In a few moments we will meet two great waves of passion crashing on the beach of human existence. And suddenly I hear the phone picks up. And I can hear somebody breathing in it. You know that moment when you're, you know, there's somebody alive on the other end. I say, I'm just about to holler, Marie, when I hear this voice. It's this man. He says, hello. Hello. San Francisco Airport Control Tower. San Francisco Airport Control Tower. I says, is Marie there? Marie! Are you calling from the Fairmont Hotel, the phone booth outside of the corner again? That's the third time this week. The toy time. Oh. Once again, cast in the outer darkness. Once again, destined to wander the earth, looking for the love of a good woman, eternally searching through the coin return slots of all the telephones of the world, looking for a nickel or a dime of friendliness, of happiness, of compassion. Oh, well, give me my kazoo. Wherever you might be, sweating men, out there in the darkness, we salute all of you who, from one time or another, from moment to moment, have had the undeniable urge to call that number that is found in the phone booths all over the world. Do you know that I found a number just like that in a phone booth in Beirut? I found a number written on the wall of a phone booth in Saigon. I found a number just like that written on the wall of a phone booth in Karachi. Everywhere, all over the world, there are men going into phone booths. Some guys wearing turbans, other guys wearing shoes made out of wood, guys wearing kilts, all of them looking at that little sign that says, if you called mother, and underneath it is Plaza 91678GTXL. Diedra. Marie, Joanne, Barbara, they're out there in the darkness. Get up your guts, man. Give them a call the next time. Open up that vast world of wonder and passion. Quack, quack, quack. Hey, 
Hey, wait. Cut my music. Quick. What are you waiting for? You know, speaking of phone booths, I have a thing here that should be reported. How many of you have ever been in Franklin, Indiana? Franklin, Indiana. Oh, wow. What rancid memories that name brings back. Franklin, Indiana. In fact, uh, I one night had a an experience in Franklin, Indiana that I think could very well have been if Dante was writing today, Dante would have used this type of experience to give him a little leverage, or if you prefer it, leverage, on, the, <laughs> on shoehorning us into about the eighth or ninth inner circle of that fantastic innermost belching furnace of hell itself. How many of you have ever looked for a garage, an open garage, at 2.15 a.m. in the morning, with the temperature standing roughly at 74 degrees below zero, and a 200-mile-an-hour wind blowing directly down from the South Pole, (laughs) and carrying with it little small chunks of ice made out of stainless steel? Uh, I mean, this, the, oh boy, I'll, you know, I, I just look at this. This reminded me of, I just did this little piece there. Franklin, Indiana, one night, I'm driving, and uh, I think, I think, you know what, I, you know what I, re- I really feel about, about uh, the American and his car, and the life that we live as, as, uh, as sea-tossed natives on the great, vast ocean of American heartland. I think that eventually our, our uh, what could be called our folk tales will not come out of the stories of lonesome wanderers of the 19th century. You know the kind of stuff that, that the folk singers sing? Oh, I'm just a lonesome wanderer, a wandering o'er the land. Oh, come on, lonesome wanderer. What do you mean, wandering from Howard Johnson to Howard Johnson and from interchange to interchange? <laughs> Get out. This is this is 19th century romantic glop. I think eventually guys will be singing songs about I'll never forget the night I died in Franklin, Indiana. It was near Interchange 42 on the old Indiana Turnpike. I was driving a Ford V8 that night, a 53 Ford V8. She was driving hard through the night. With a bad set of vows. Oh, well, well, that's the story of all of our lives driving through the night. And you know, I could see, I could see my gas gauge getting lower and lower and lower. You know that awful feeling? And, and you begin to see it's down now around zero. You know, it says E, that little snotty E. And the needle is now going down past E. And you can't figure out where, you know, if it can go below E. And there's nothing but blackness. Blackness and a few deserted silos, and you're whistling along that dark road of loneliness, sailing forever and ever under the scudding clouds of the American wilderness, looking for, looking for that great S.O. station in the sky. Oh, you're 7,500 miles out of Indianapolis, 4,000 miles to Columbus, and you're sailing through tiny little towns named New Jerusalem East. Oh, it goes past with nothing but darkness and houses, and you see an occasional sign, and you drive up next to the sign there, hoping that it says gas station, tonk, and it says handmade quilts for sale. Inquire within. 
And tonight, yes, we salute you. And one night in the darkness, not more than 200 yards from the city limits, <laughs> city limits of Franklin, Indiana, suddenly my 53 Ford V8 with the bad valves, the valve springs that sounded like a marimba playing in Xavier Kugat's band, suddenly there was a... <laughs> to a stop with the temperature at 200 below zero and the wind screaming down out of the frozen north from those vast woods up there just beyond the Canadian border and the old Ford skittered up that soft shoulder that the sign is always telling you about and I stopped nothing but the silent American night around me and the sound of my drip pan the oil dripping down from those poor, sad, out-of-round pistons. And already the temperature is dropping rapidly, fiendishly, in the front seat of my linoleum-covered upholstery Ford. I crawled out the creak of that frozen hinge on my door, mocking me like the impish laughter of the fiends of hell. I turned and slammed the door and trudged toward a tiny little hamlet, the kind that poets write about, that James Whitcomb Riley wept bitter tears over, the lovely little hamlet of Franklin, Indiana, in search of that great golden shell in the sky, that Esso station that beckoning finger of the Texaco man who stands ready to help you any time. Yeah, sure, I know. Three and a half hours later, and 13 miles away, I'm still trudging along that lonely road, my knuckles sore from pounding on doors, my hoarse voice croaking from hours of crying piteously for help over the dead American wasteland. Our lives will be measured. Yes, indeed. By great gas stations we have known in the past. Great nights spent tossed on the boundless sea of the American heartland. Franklin, Indiana, we salute you. Out there in the darkness, the greatest little speed trap this side of hell. I remember going past a sign in the dark about 4 o'clock in the morning. It says, you have been in Franklin, Indiana, the garden spot of mid-America. Come again. The Lions Club meets on Wednesdays in Fifield's Drugstore. And a big silent neon sign, frozen, saying silently to the night, eat, truckers welcome. Closed. <laughs> I'm forever blowing bubbles. i got to turn this up. There we go. Forever blowing bubbles in the air. They fly so high, nearly reach the sky. Then, like my dreams...
they fade and die. Oh, wow, what a great set of lyrics. Can you imagine the Beatles singing that one? You know, as a matter of fact, it's funny when you uh, today's <laughs> you know, they talk about uh, they talk about no philosophy in lyrics. Listen to this one now. I'm serious. My I, I can remember my mother. Uh how how many of you recall the the song that your mother always sang? You know, if I told you what the what the song is that I always sing when in moments of stress when somebody hollers, "Hey shepherd, sing." Well, the first thing that comes to my mind to sing, I do not sing the Star Spangled Banner. I do not sing my school song. In fact, all through the four years when I was in school, both in high school and in college, I never learned the school songs. And I would stand there in auditorium sessions, and I was thinking, ah, ah, I'm, I'm ad-libbing, I'm, I'm, my mouth is going, and all I knew was, purple victory is our you. I'd sing that out real loud. And, and the, the songs that we sing under stress are almost impossible to define why, it, why we do it, why we sing these songs under stress. Now, what is, Bob, if I were to say to you, hey, Bob, sing a song, quick. What would you sing? <laughs> you know? Well, you know what I sing? Uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a nutty thing. Whenever I'm, for example, I'll go into the John, see, and I'll go into the shower, I'll turn the water on, and instantly I'll start singing. I'll sing, just the other day I heard a lady say, give me Mission Bell wine, because Mission Bell's fine. Just the other day. I sing a singing commercial that I used to hear when I was a kid. That's the only song I honestly know. I know every last word of it. I know the lyrics. Just the other day, I heard a lady say, Give me Mission Bell wine, because Mission Bell's fine. At the rink at day or night, at the rink at rudder white, Mission Bell's the wine for you, and the price is right. The price is right. <laughs> well, why do I remember that? You know, you know how whenever whenever guys go into the great beyond and they always play at his funeral his favorite music. Can you imagine them playing on the organ? Just the other day, I oh wow. Oh, by the way, it's it's time. Speaking of uh, fantastic organs, about to blow their own tutor. Would you please bring on the uh, would you the profound music, please? Oh wow, bring it up. Oh. This is the kind of stuff to give the troops. This is our song. And now, bravely marching into the 20th century, standing like a flickering beacon on the arid landscape of desolate mediocrity of American radio. Bravely... Defiantly, daring all comers on the ramparts of intellectual questing, stands. Alone under the arching American night sky, KFRC. In this, the majestic queen city of the Western world, Lying like a jewel on the vast stretches of the open sea. <laughs> Far to the north, the reaches of the frozen pole. Look down upon the great valley of the Pacific Basin. Endless leagues to the south, 
over the long-forgotten wasteland of the great, great ocean, the father of them all. My God, are we lucky to be here. Say it to yourself over and over and over again. What a fortunate person I am. Among all of God's crawling creatures, I live in San Francisco. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Mm, yes, sir, don't mean maybe. Bravely, defiantly, KFRC has plugged the great dike, the great overflowing flood of crud that is surrounding us all. We're standing here bravely, trying to keep it back. Let us be thankful for KFRC, friends. Yes, say a Babbitt among radio stations. A bowling team captain among ants. And my mother used to sing, hunched over her sink. I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. Yeah. That's enough, Bob. Very good. You want to hear about that about that uh, phone booth that I forgot to tell you about in Franklin, Indiana? Listen to this story. Here's another poor storm-tossed soul who, 25 years from now, is going to have a story to tell that nobody will believe him. Franklin, Indiana. When a pay telephone took his dime without giving him a call in exchange. Edwin Swint. Now, there's an Indiana name. I've ever heard one. <laughs> Edwin Swint. Did I ever tell you about Cassie Ledbetter? I used to date. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's funny about the names in Indiana. They're, they're very special. As you can tell, I'm from Indiana. And uh, some of the great names, and, and if I ever used any of them in a short story or a novel, no one, no one would believe them. I lived two doors briefly. Uh, this family is one of those families, you know, that moves into your neighborhood like a whirlwind that moves out. Some fantastic disaster happens, like they can't raise the rent and they move out real quick. Well, it was a family that lived for about two months in my neighborhood. And they had this girl, and her name was Iona Pearl Bodkin. Somehow, that, uh, it has, that has the same kind of basic American sensual rhythm as Finner, Banner, Bench, and Bean, uh, <laughs> one of these guys, <laughs> Iona Pearl Bodkin. I remember one day, Iona Pearl Bodkin, it's funny, the little memories you have of, of one incident in, in a, a scene that you keep out of your mind. If, if you say to me, Iona Pearl Bodkin, I'll never forget one day, Iona Pearl Bodkin. I couldn't even recognize her if I saw her today, her face, that is. Uh, Iona, Iona, <laughs> that's terrible. Iona Pearl Bodkin, one day, I'm just a little kid, see, and she was one of the big types, the big girls, see, and she must have been maybe 15 or something in high school, and I was about eight, you know, just a little walking around scratching kid, and I am walking around scratching in front of the house, and Iona Pearl Bodkin arrives in front of her house, which was about two doors down, in a car, she's with somebody. And they're talking in the car, and I'm running around hitting guys and yelling, and you know what you do, scratching and spitting and stuff. 
And suddenly, Iona Pearl got out of the car. And she said something to this guy. It was the first time I'd ever seen uh, a chick and a guy having a yelling fight. You know, that kind of... And she jumps out of the car, and she stands by the side of the car, yelling at him. And he's in the car. And he's probably 16. See, they've had a big scene. And he's yelling in the car, and she's yelling at him. When all of a sudden... You got the music ready in there? All right, that, we need a little of that spellbound music. Hold it there, and I'll give you the cue. All of a sudden, see, I'm a kid. My mouth is hanging open, uh, you know, and Iona is hanging over the edge of the car. You know, she's got, like, she's got her head hanging into the window there, and he is yelling at her, and she's yelling at him. When suddenly, so help me, I'm raising my hand, a wind came along, and her skirt blew right up around her ears. Wow! You know, just all of a sudden, whoop, and it went up like that. Wowie, bang, crash. And I stood there. And Iona Pearl Bodkin, believe me, was the first girl I ever heard of who wore black underwear. It's fantastic. What a moment. I don't know whether you know what this means in Hessville, Indiana. Well, let me tell you, the birds swam through the air overhead. The sun reeled in its orbit. And the clouds formed beautiful words of poetry and love. <laughs> Junior Bruner dropped the bat and just sort of stood there for a minute sweating. And I didn't know what to say, you know. And that skirt went up around her ears just like that. It hung there like an upside-down parachute for a minute. And she beats it down, of course, real quick, you know, down like that. And she was once again Iona Pearl Bodkin. But never again, really, was she Iona Pearl Bodkin to me or to Junior Bruner. Never again. Oh, wowie, black underwear. Bring it up, please, Bob. I think that's sufficient there. Once again, we are saluting great moments in the education of 20th century man. <laughs> she was at least 4,000 years ahead of her time. I own a Pearl Bodkin, wherever you are, baby. Oh, wow. Little do you realize what wonderful filigree, what Rococo dreams you brought to that tiny town festering on the great shore of Lake Michigan in the vast American Midwest. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. That's enough, Robert. That's enough. You know, uh, Speak. I, I have to finish the story here. I'm sorry I got sidetracked on on uh, what happened to me that. You want to you want to know what happened to me that night, in Franklin, Indiana? Though, it was, it was one of those hellish nights uh, that I suspect form the folklore. You know, I, I every time I see people sitting around, uh, just you know, sitting. You go you go to a restaurant or something. Around every, particularly men, around every man there is a nimbus or a corona of his own particular folk tales. Every family has its collection of folk stories. That is, uh, calamitous things that happen to them, uh, usually in connection with uh, an automobile, and that's an American thing, in connection with a car, the time the car rolled over nine times, you know, <laughs> and through the, through, the Christmas, through the Christmas tree, four blocks, that kind of thing. And uh, they always talk about it, you know, or the, or the time they bought the used car, the used Hupmobile, and they drove it home and it had a rubber frame, and they didn't know it until they got it home, and they found that the guy had, had filled the transmission with sawdust and bubble gum. And, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all these little folk stories. Well, I, I suspect 
that that uh, eventually somebody will will collect these folk tales of the American road the way we today in the 20th century collect folk tales of the sea of the century before. Now those stories of the sea in the 19th century and the 18th century to the people who lived them were just ordinary, you know, they were things that happened because they lived on the sea. And and I think one day uh, people will collect uh, bound volumes of folk tales. Uh, you know, do you know that there is a folk tale in Indiana? Already there is a lore of genuine folk stories that have grown up around automobiles. Uh, have you ever heard of the folk story? Uh, I guess it's a folk tale, but it, it, I heard it a dozen times when I was a kid. Of this 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 phantom truck. Have you ever heard the stories of the phantom truck? Well, there was a story that that many times drivers, guys on on cross country truck routes, going through places like Kansas, these great vast open seas. You know, actually, when you stop to think about it. The, the open road on, say, for example, through Kansas and places like Iowa, the Great Plains states, this is about almost about as lonely and about as dangerous in some ways as the open sea. And a guy driving a great big uh, diesel, Cummings diesel cab over engine, 18-tonner, uh, Roaring along with the with the refrigerator banging above him, you know it's a big refrigerator car, and he's carrying eighteen billion pounds of frozen haddock to God knows where, and he's thundering along through the highway. They begin to see apparitions, and I have heard stories uh, from various truck drivers of one type or another. In fact, at one time in my life, I spent one brief period, in fact, a three-week period, in a big semi-tractor trailer. Uh, that's something I don't think I've ever talked much about. It was a very brief period. Uh, I got a brief job, one of those things that was a, was a quickie job, and then it was over. But it was a three-week job in a big tractor trailer. It was a big Rio. Have you ever heard that you've seen those Rio, R-E-O? Uh, many years ago, the Rio was a car, and, and you know, just a driving around passenger type car. But this big Rio cab over engine, fantastic thing. It had, it had visibility. Believe me, it was like you were driving in the, in the window of Macy's. It had glass all the way around. You sat four miles above the rest of the traffic and had these gigantic, it was a diesel thing. It had these, these tremendous exhausts that ran up the side of the cab, had big mufflers, and you could feel them. And when the, when the truck would idle, we would pull up to, uh, like we'd come up to U.S. Uh, 30, uh, U.S. 6 and 30 cross there. There's a big cross intersection where these two major highways cross in the middle of the state of in nothing but, but flat land and, and cornfields and, and muskmelon fields for miles in the middle of the darkness. We'd come roaring up at 2 or 3 in the morning, and you know those flashing lights be yellow and red and yellow, yellow, red, yellow, red, and he'd start shifting down. It must have had 19 speeds forward. And you could feel it shuddering on the air. And it always, always, as he's shifting down, you hear this steady undercurrent of obscenity that he's laying out. You know, and he's... And then we would pull up to the light. Oh, what a sound. What a sound of power. And you sit there, and I was the helper. And uh, that meant I sat next to him and listened to him swear. And uh, uh, yeah, and once in a while applauded whenever he'd come up with something really good. 
And he would open the window once in a while and yell down at a guy in a little car four to come up, you know, and he yelled out, spit on the roof, you know, and let him know who's boss. And 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 the 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 myths and the various uh, folk, uh, the drifting folk ideas that that play a part in the truck driver's world have hardly been recorded. And you know that there is a is a story that is, has great currency among cross country truck drivers of this phantom truck that they see. Uh, it has been seen by many truck drivers, an unlighted truck. Uh, usually it's seen hurtling down a long grade, usually about a 30-degree grade somewhere in the West Virginia mountains or someplace in the Ozarks. And they're driving along at night, the, 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 the driver, and he's got his lights on and he's all by himself, when suddenly he senses something ahead of him. And sure enough, out of the darkness, he sees this great hurtling unmarked truck that just roars down out of the darkness and and it's gone. And no trace, no record, and he will get to the next town or the next truck stop and white-faced and shaken, and he will pull into the truck stop and there's 18 guys sitting around with their lumber jackets and all that stuff, and you know it says on the back, it says Hemingway trucks. Have you seen the Hemingway trucks and the big M trucks and all that? And he will pull in, and he'll say, holy smokes. Boy, I'll tell you, I saw this. It was, I, I think it was a GMC. I can't, I, don't, I think it was a, D, a GMC, a double eight, came down that hill. And one of the guys will look at him and say, wait a minute, was it, was it uh, over there in the big grade outside of Circleville? And he'll say, yeah. Oh, man, I saw that. I remember about a year ago, I saw that. Truck. Well, that whole myth of the great, roaring, dark, unmarked, plain, sinister, monstrous truck is a is a piece of folklore that they all now that is also a, a story that is very common among seamen among sailors uh, in fact i I stood on the fantail one time of a destroyer and there was this uh, there was this chief who was about a twenty five year chief or maybe a thirty five year chief one of these round faced guys uh, that always wears his chief hat on the back of his head. That kind of guy, he's been a chief so long that he, he just lives perpetually next to the icebox down there in the chief's quarters, you know, that kind of guy. And he's really got it made. He has seen COs come and go and captains come and go. You know, he saw them start out as, as seamen, and the next thing you know, they're, they're fleet admirals, and he is always down there in the chief's quarters. He has seen it all come and go. The eternal chief. There must have been a chief with the Phoenicians. Uh, <laughs> there had to be there had to be guys standing on the poop deck when when the Spanish Armada sailed in to do battle with the English. Ah, oh, this is a bad business. They right away could see it was disaster. They knew it. And 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 uh, the, the chief, the eternal chief. You know, it's funny how people talk about the eternal first sergeant. He's become a myth, and nobody has really uh, given the quality of a myth to the chief. And in many ways, they are even more unbelievable when you get close to them. And this chief is standing there, and we are sailing. We are sailing off the Turkish coast. And it is as dark as you can conceive of it being, just absolutely pitch black. And there was that soft, peculiar, Middle East, Oriental wind blowing that has that strange smell to it. 
and you could smell the sea, and you looked down from the fantail, and the, the destroyer was cutting through the water at a good clip, maybe 25 knots. She was whipping along there, and it was on destroyer picket escort duty. And way off in the distance, we could see the flashing red light occasionally of the carrier. And uh, that was the big carrier that these little these little destroyers circle around and 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 uh, and play. Uh, they kind of play a guard to, and they dart back and forth and they watch it. And once in a while, they talk to it. And uh, by the way, part of the of the life of a of a uh, of an armada at sea, or at least a, a flight of uh, a squadron of destroyers. And uh, it's associated uh, flat top and so on is the myth that all the guys in the little destroyer all have about the great life that the guys on the on the uh, on the big ships lead. And so they sit there and they look, they look in the distance and they can see that little flickering red light, you know, the running light on this this great flat top, this forest all, this fantastic ship in the distance. It looks like a cliff. Uh, way off there on the horizon, you can see a little red light going off and on. And we're sitting on the fantail. And this guy's looking over there at that red light. It's about four miles away. He says, boy, you just came for the forest all, didn't you? And I says, yep. Silence and the wind blowing through the rigging. <sighs> you have no idea how the wind whips over those decks at night. It's cold. You could feel that. That, that Mediterranean chill in the air, and you could smell turkey off in the distance there. She just came from the forest, though. The Big F. <laughs> and in the fleet, by the way, the Big F did not necessarily mean the Big Forest, though. And he says, the Big F. Oh, boy. Oh, that's the life. I hear that their gidunk stays open until 1 o'clock in the morning. It's hard to believe. <laughs> the wind is blowing and he's like a farmer he's like a Kansas farmer looking with hollow eyes with red rimmed hollow eyes at the city on the horizon yeah, you know just looking off to Chicago you can see it glowing there in the distance or, or like a desert trapper looking down over the long hills and he sees the lights of San Francisco in the distance and he has these great myths in his mind. What it must be like. I hear their gidunk stays open until one. Is that true? The gidunk, in case you're interested, is the ice cream bar. Uh, where they sell the guys this, this terrible, uh, it's, it's imitation uh, plastic ice cream that comes out of a squirter machine. And they all line up for it. And he says, I hear, I can't believe it, one o'clock in the morning. The gidunk on this little ship opened once a month for five minutes. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, and they had their little stores. You ought to see the stores on, on a destroyer. It's a little hole in, in, a, in a steel bulkhead. And you look in there and you can see cuckoo clocks. They have been carrying the same four cuckoo clocks since the time they were in this French seaport, and they bought 1,800 cuckoo clocks for some nutty reason, and that's all they got in their stores. And every once in a while, a guy looks in and says, one day I'm going to buy one of them cuckoo clocks. <laughs> and then he winds up by buying two T-shirts and a bar of Life Boy. And that's considered a big, wild afternoon. 
and the wind howls through the rigging, and we're standing back there on the fantail, and this guy is looking out, and you can see the water, just wild, phosphorescent water, and the great wake curving and arcing behind us, and once in a while you could see the roll of some kind of a fish or something. It looked like a, a porpoise, and the wow, and you, that little boat is chugging and booming through the wind, and he, he's looking out there, and I can see the Florentstone way off in the distance. And he says, you know, he said, I'll never forget one night. He says, we weren't more than 30 miles, 40 miles from right where we are. And he said, we'd, we'd been dispatched back to Ankara. And uh, we, were, we were going back uh, uh, by ourselves. And he says, and I was, I was on, I was on uh, portside watch. And he says, and all of a sudden I see coming out of the darkness. He says, I, I swear it must have been a cruiser. Not a light, nothing. He says, that boat went past us, must have been doing 60 knots. I couldn't believe it. And he says, and I got on the, I, I got on the cans here, and I called to the bridge, and I says, hey, there's a cruiser in a park by And they didn't see it. You wouldn't believe it, they didn't see it. That thing went off into the darkest. We didn't pick it up on the radar or nothing. That thing went right on past. He says, I swear I saw it. He says, you know, not only that, I got a guy named Al. This guy's on the SS Cone, USS Cone, uh, 649. He said, you know where he saw that? He said, it's that same ship? He says, oh, it's that same ship he saw one night off Beirut. The Sixth Fleet. And I'm sitting there listening, and I'm remembering I heard the same story. Exactly the same story from a guy driving a giant Rio. And we were going along US-41 one night, and a car passed us. You know, just an ordinary car went past in the dark, and his lights were out for some reason or other. And he flicks his lights at him, you know, and bap, 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 turn on your lights. And the guy throws his lights on. And we're roaring through the dark. And, and you know, when you're in a truck, when you're in a big truck, you learn to shout at a, at a sort of a, a three-quarter shout. Nobody ever talks in a normal tone of voice. Just, hey, did I ever tell you about the time I'm driving a yard? And he tells me the story of the time he was taking this, this load of nails, this great big heavy load of nails, and he was driving his Rio cab over engine, and he was coming down out of wheeling. And he was driving out of wheeling steel, and he saw this great dark truck come hurtling out of the Stygian blackness towards him, unmarked and roared right on past him. And uh, I said, you really saw it? You really did see it, Clancy. What do you mean? Of course I saw it. He said, you know, the funny thing about that, he says, other guys have seen that same truck. Other guys have seen that same truck. Ah, yes. And so we salute the great, vast, heaving, pitch-black, stygian American sea. Out there rolling on and on and on. Crisscrossed by those long, marching lines of high-tension wires. Carrying who knows what to who knows where. And under the dark, scudding sky, those whites, those GMCs, those Rios, those Cummings diesels are roaring on and on and on. Wherever they are, man, what a job. What a world. And right behind the seat, under where they sit, there's their little collection of red flares for those great disasters they always run into. The fire extinguishers, the first aid kit, and the little flags that they can fly when everything goes to pot. And they go roaring down into the depths of the Davy Jones locker of the truck driver world. Bring it up there, Bob. You like that, huh? <laughs>
Wow. You know, that's a, that's a funny, uh, that's a side of life you never, you never really hear much about. And that's the peculiar romance of working, uh, of just being, uh, being on a, a job that is surrounded by forces that are sinister and unexplainable. Uh, how, many, how many of you have ever heard of the, of the great myths and folk tales of the steel industry? Do you know that there that there is a great steel worker? Are you aware that there is a is a is a Beowulf of steel men? You won't hear this in colleges, I'm sure. You know, the universities unfortunately too often study the folk tales of other lands. Uh they study the myths of other cultures. And I doubt whether many of you uh, all right, I will award the brass figligi with bronze oak leaf palm if you can give me the name of the great steel worker in the sky. Now, all of you know the name of Paul Bunyan, I'm sure. You know who Paul Bunyan is? Paul Bunyan is sort of, uh, he, he's the, the great mythical god of the upper Midwest. Have you ever seen that statue of Paul Bunyan in Minnesota? You ever seen that? Uh, over, I forget what river it is overlooking, but there's a gigantic concrete statue of Paul Bunyan. And uh, he's he's in color. They, they, he's painted. He's gigantic. He's about sixty feet high, and he's standing there with his pet. What was the name of his pet? Do you know what it is? Come on now. We're talking about American folk. Uh, real, real. Uh, this is genuine folk uh, stories of America, and and there is a parallel uh, to Paul Bunyan in the steel world. And uh, one of the first things that I heard, and there's a curious thing about it, you know, these things are really in operation. Uh, when I was a kid, and I'm, I'm uh, working in the steel mill, uh, and even before that, when I was just walking around in the steel town, uh, I used to hear people singing a song. There was a song about this great steel worker. Uh, <laughs> and, and something that I ought to sing it. Oh, God, I wish I could remember it. But... Uh, he was the great steel worker in the sky, and he could do all these fantastic things. Like, for example, there was a story, I remember, the interminable verses, interminable, went on and on and on, of the incredible feats of this, this, uh, this uh, fantastic steel worker. And he could, he could take, for example, uh, uh, the rods, uh, rolling. Do you know about the roll mill? You've seen pictures in the, in the, in the newsreels and one thing or another of them rolling steel? And they're rolling it out, and you see the ingot being flattened down, and it goes back and forth. Well, he was famous for being able to roll it by hand. That uh, when, the, when the roll broke down and they had to get the steel through, Joe could take this thing, and he could run this fantastic rolling press by hand. And that was how much strength he had. And then there was a story about the time that the open hearth ladle, uh, the great label, uh, ladle in the open hearth, uh, was, was breaking and cracking. And Joe leaped up, and he saw all, of, all the men were going to be killed, and he, with his bare hands, kept this molten metal from, from spilling out over the open hearth floor until they could lower it. And, of course, Joe himself was grievously, sorely injured, but nevertheless, Joe went on. And uh, in the next, in the next uh, verse, uh, Joe was once again back at the, at, the, at, the old, at the old stand. And in fact, he, uh, in the next verse, there was a thing about how he could take these ingots 
and he could he could lift them and bend them. Uh, do you know, you know the name? Did, did anybody call it in? I don't know. Should I tell it to him or not? No, that's a terrible thing. No, come on. They should know about these things. This is America, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but but these these are the things these are the things that curious. Oh, you want to hear what happened to that guy in the phone booth in Franklin, Indiana? Please bring me bring me my Franklin, Indiana, the great great roaring Midwest. No, no, no! Come on, Bob. That's not Franklin, Indiana music. In some ways, it is. Now there we go. Once again, we salute the the gentle the gentle myth of the Midwest. Bring it up there. When a pay telephone took his dime without giving him a call in exchange in Franklin, Indiana, Edwin Swint, 29, hopped in his car and smashed the booth right there in front of Fifield's drugstore. Take that! Come that! Finally driven to the breaking point. State trooper Russell Miller said he witnessed the display of temper and said he never saw anything like it. Yes, Franklin, Indiana will do that to a man. Putting that dime in and not getting the call, finally will bust that old thing right in the middle. And a man's got to do something about it. And so tonight, we salute Edwin Swint of Franklin, Indiana, who did it for all of us. Very good. Oh, man. Well, I, I one time, of course, I... I and all of us have have have, uh, have our own stories about phone booths, but did I ever tell you about the time I saw three guys get so mad at a phone booth they just pushed it over, with another guy in it, and they were mad because the other guy would not get out and had made 17 calls to his bookie and just stayed in that phone booth for about four and a half days, and they just finally pushed it right over, and there he was in the phone booth and they just turned around and walked out, and left for the nearest Howard Johnson. So, gang, keep your knees loose and uh, think good, clean thoughts. I think that's always good for a person to do. And um, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> and keep saying that uh, loudly. Everything will be all right. And, uh, oh, yes, here's a suggestion for Christmas for those of you out there who are picking up little hints and kinks for the forthcoming Yuletide season. I have from my gift catalog that was just mailed to me in full color suggestion for a French provincial toilet seat. Makes a perfect gift and comes wrapped. I kind of like that. American life is developing a little style. 